Warning, this episode contains sexual violence and references to suicide. It isn't suitable for children under the age of 13. Listener caution is advised. On the 10th of January 2002, after spending an evening at the best Chinese restaurant in Saint-Quentin, 24-year-old Elodie Kulik said goodbye to a good friend, Hervé, got into her car and started off home. Elodie lived in Peronne, some 29 kilometres from Saint-Quentin, a small commune situated in the Somme in the Hauts-de-France region of France. She knew the road like the back of her hand, but that night the empty roads were frozen and thick fog carpeted the beetroot fields as far as the eye could see. The sun in the northeast of France is a beautiful and airy place. You can almost feel the tortured souls of the fallen soldiers from the First World War. What happened to Elodie next is up for conjecture. Did she lose control of the car? maybe hitting a sheet of black ice, or was she chased and pushed from the road in a deliberate and targeted attack? We'll never know exactly, but at 21 minutes past midnight, Elodie rang 18, the number of the emergency fire ambulance service in France. The horrified emergency centre operator tried asking for a name and the location of the caller, but all she heard was terrified screaming, and maybe two or three men's voices in the background. Then the call ended brusquely. The operator called back, but no one answered. Half an hour later, a passing motorist saw a red Peugeot in a field, blinkers blinking. This was off the departmental road 44, just a few kilometres from Peronne. He went to investigate and help anyone injured and found the passenger door open, the roof light and the radio on, the keys in the ignition, but the car was empty, just a woman's handbag on the seat. Meanwhile, the gendarme had received more calls about the car in the field, but they didn't yet know about the emergency call. They were puzzled that the car was in an accident here, the road is as straight as an arrow, and where was the driver? The gendarme identified the car's owner from the licence plate and tried reaching Elodie at her home, but nobody answered. The next day they reached out to the family, who had had no contact with Elodie. They then learnt of the emergency call. It was no longer an accident, maybe a murder, or at the very least a kidnapping. On January 12th, two days later, a local farmer stumbled across Elodie's naked body in the small commune of Tertry, a few kilometres southeast from where her car had been abandoned. She'd been left in plain sight on a heap of manure. She was on her back, her legs slightly bent, and one side was badly burnt, her face blackened by fire. Her body had been abandoned on disaffected military grounds dating from the First World War. 
a local dumping ground for local farmers. To know this place, the perpetrators must be from the area. Elodie was a striking blonde, 24 years old at the time of her murder. She was described by her friends as ambitious, strong-willed, warm and loyal. She was the youngest ever bank manager in France at the time, a fact that had made the local papers. She was born on the 29th of December 1977 in Lens, her brother Fabien 13 months later. Tragedy had already struck the Coolie family. Just over a year earlier, on the 25th of December 1976, the family were in a car accident caused by black ice. The two children, Karine and Laurent, six and seven at the time, were both killed instantly when they were thrown through the windshield. Both parents were seriously injured. Jackie, the father, he was in intensive care. He didn't find out about the death of his children until 23 days after. His wife, Rosemary, was afraid he would lose the will to live if told before. Despite the shadow of her deceased siblings looming in her life, Elodie was someone successful and happy, ready to live her life to the full. The investigation was overseen by the gendarmes. In France, there are two forces of police. The gendarmes are a military force with law enforcement duties amongst the civilian population, usually in rural towns with small populations of less than 10,000. This happens to be about 95% of the territory and 50% of the population in France. Despite the effort to hide the crime by burning the body, Nuclear DNA was discovered in a discarded condom on, and on Elodie's body. A towel stained with blood and paint was found nearby, and four incomplete DNA samples and a fingerprint were also found at the crime scene. The autopsy showed that Elodie had been manually strangled and raped. There was an absence of soot in her lungs, meaning she was already deceased when her body was burned. Sperm was found inside Elodie and on the discarded condom, both belonging to the same man. He'd raped her twice, once without and then with the condom. Although a number of clues were left at the scene, no suspects were found. Over 10,000 people were interviewed, 10,000 wiretaps carried out, 14,000 telephones that were in the area at the time were looked at and over 600 leads followed. The DNA found in the discarded condom didn't match anyone in the FNAIG. FNAIG is the Fichier National Automatisé des Empreintes Génétiques. This is the French version of CODIS, but in 2002 
it really wasn't a very large database. Nor did it match any one of the five or six thousand men who consented to a DNA test during the investigation. DNA was also found on the towel, but it was too degraded to be of much help. This was, and still is, the criminal affair with the most DNA collected during an investigation in France. The gendarmes started the investigation by looking into Elodie's life. Did she have a boyfriend? Her friend said that she hadn't been seriously seeing anyone lately. Some casual dating, but nothing more. People close to her said that she was very independent, and if she didn't like someone flirting with her, she'd say so. Not aggressively, but firmly. The gendarmes wondered if she'd annoyed someone that day, annoyed them enough to do the unthinkable. They reconstructed her timeline that day, minute by minute. That morning, she'd gone to work on foot. The bank agency where she worked was very close to her house. At midday, she went to lunch with two co-workers. They'd eaten at a restaurant close to the bank. Then she'd had meetings all afternoon until uh, quarter to six. Elodie then took her car to Saint-Quentin, where she met her friend, Hervé. Hervé agreed to give his DNA, as did Elodie's last two boyfriends. They were all cleared. The gendarme then started looking at her customers at the bank. Her co-workers told them about a man who was waiting for her the last night she worked, a man who wanted to take her out. They found the man in question, and again, no DNA match was made. Summer of 2002 arrived, and at that moment, the gendarmes think they could be dealing with a serial killer. The 9th of July 2002, the body of Patricia Leclerc, 19, was found less than 30 kilometres away from where Elodie was murdered. The circumstances are similar. Patricia had been beaten and raped, and then run over by a car. One and a half months later, the 21st of August, in the same region, Christelle Dubuisson, 18 years old, is stabbed seven times before being crushed to death by a van. There was nothing to go on in these murders, and the gendarmes speculated that the perpetrator might be the same in all three cases. The Kulik family were feeling more and more hopeless. They despaired over the lack of progression in the investigation. Elodie's mother, Rosemarie, had fallen into a deep depression. Unable to come to terms with the loss of three children, the first two in the car accident, the third raped and murdered, she swallowed a bottle of rat poison and fell into a deep coma. Every day her husband, Jackie, would visit her in intensive care. He'd tell her about the investigation, hoping that she could hear him, hoping that she could understand that he was fighting for justice for Elodie. She couldn't. She died on the 10th of July, 2011, after nine years in a coma. At the beginning of September 2002, Jackie Kulik and the families of Patricia and Christel were invited by Nicholas Sarkozy 
interior minister at the time, to discuss the investigation. The families hoped to have just one investigative judge in charge of all three case files, grouping the three murders together. This would have allowed more coordination between the investigations. At the time, one judge was in charge of Elodie's and Patricia's cases, another was in charge of Crystal's. At this moment, though, the investigators were moving away from the idea that Elodie's murder was linked to the two others. They'd found DNA, and it was different on two of the bodies. More means were given to the gendarmerie. Another ten investigators were detached, bringing to over 60 the number of investigators looking solely at these three murders. On November the 24th, a break came in the Leclerc et Dubuisson investigation. A certain Jean-Paul Lecomte was arrested after a routine check. His DNA matched that found on Patricia Leclerc and Christelle Dubuisson. He was a repeat offender on parole from a 13-year sentence for rape at the time of the murders. The gendarme excluded him quickly from being the murderer of Elodie as he was in prison at the time. The investigation into Elodie's case continued. Over the years, witnesses had come forward relating stories about car rodeos and reckless drivers cutting in front of them, breaking brusquely and regularly causing havoc on the roads at night. Some of these suspects were brought in for questioning and DNA sampling. Still no match was found. The years passed. Then on January the 16th, 2012, a week after the memorial service marking the 10 years since Elodie's death, the judge called Jackie Kulik. The judge told Jackie that they'd finally identified one of Elodie's aggressors. It seemed like a miracle after all these years. The identification was made thanks to one gendarme. He'd just returned from the USA, where he'd been in training at Quantico with the FBI. While there, he'd learnt about new techniques for exploiting unknown DNA, whose donor was not in the FNAG database. This technique is called parental or familial searches. Instead of submitting the whole nuclear DNA profile, only a partial profile is submitted to the database. The search will now be looking for anyone who is related to this profile, it multiplies the chance of finding a relative of the perpetrator, maybe a brother, uncle or a grandfather. So, this method was applied by the gendarme investigating Elodie's case, and they cast a match. They found someone in the FNAG who was from the same family of Elodie's rapist and killer. This was the first time that this method was used in France. The parental match led to a man who was in prison for sexual assault on a minor. He had a son, a man named Gregory Villar. Gregory Villar was a plumber 
born in 1979. The bad news, though, was that he died in November of 2003. He was killed when he drove his car full speed down a straight, dry road and finished under a lorry coming towards him in the opposite lane. Suicide or accident, no one's sure. Viat's body was exhumed on January the 24th to be able to definitely compare the DNA samples. There was no doubt to be had. He was the rapist who had left his sperm inside Elodie and on the discarded condom. The identification of VR led investigators back to the emergency call made by Elodie. On the call they could make out at least two men's voices, not for very long and not that clearly. They were sure that they'd find the accomplices in Gregory Viat's circle of friends. Viat's life at the time of the murder was dissected. He was 23 years old in 2002 when he committed the aggression. He was a plumber in a small village near Peronne, and he'd taken over his family business when his father was sent to prison. The investigators asked around the village, People who knew him said that he was a hard worker, but a rogue and a schemer. He was a regular in two local bars where they learnt that he was a mean drunk and a wife beater. He was a member of a four-wheel drive club and rode motorbikes. Nobody really understood how an experienced driver such as VR came to have such an accident during the day on a road that was in a straight line. And his friends, because that's really what the gendarmes were looking for. He had a group of friends who, like him, were interested in cars. They'd all go on road trips in and around Saint-Quentin. People in the village said that Viat wasn't the leader, but that he hung around with older guys, men who had bad reputations, hotheads. The gendarmes found that there had been a lot of deaths in Viat's extended circle of friends, especially in the year 2008. Eric Mouton, aged 20, was found dead in a canal. No water was found in his lungs, but he'd been beaten and his liver had burst. His case was closed in 2009 without much investigation, it was seen. Julien Cordier, 20 years old had burnt to death in a rented car. And then there was Nelson, aged 17, also found dead in the canal, no water in his lungs and also signs of a beating. The gendarmes will find no link between these deaths and that of Elodie. Anyway, these men would have been way too young to have been involved at the time, 14 and 11 respectively. I couldn't find any clear links either to the people in Viat's band of friends. In December of 2012, the gendarmes revealed that a mitochondrial DNA had been found at the crime scene. It was on the condom packaging and it belonged to Viat's ex-wife and mother of his son. They're sure that it was a secondary transfer after close contact earlier in the day. She'd been in bed all night, uh, the night of the murder, at her parents' house, pregnant with Viat's child. The investigators identified 61 people in Viat's circle. They were profiled and some had wiretaps taken out on their telephones. 
On January the 16th, 2013, seven people were arrested and placed in police custody. They made all of them listen to Elodie's emergency call and asked if they recognised any voices. Out of the seven, five said that they recognised the voice of a certain Willie Barben, who was also in police custody at the same moment. They played the recording to Bardon, who at first recognised his voice, then denied that it was his. One of the men who had listened to the recording and had recognised Bardon was very convincing it was someone close to him, his nephew. The investigative judge decided to confront them both. And the nephew never backed down and said to Bardon, quote, It's your voice, own up. While Bardon replied, quote, It's not me, I swear, it sounds like me, but it isn't. William Bardon was the best friend of Gregory Villar. Bardon had no criminal record. He'd owned a bar in a small village near Saint-Quentin but the mayor had expelled him two years earlier for non-payment of rent. The investigation would find no other proof of Willie Bardon's involvement, but 11 years after the death of Elodie Kulik, Willie Bardon is arrested and charged with kidnapping, sequestration, gang rape and murder, then placed in detention. When the local newspaper, the Courrier Picard, published an article about the arrest of Willie Bowden. It triggered new testimony from a woman who'd already been quoted in the press in 2002. This woman, who was interviewed under the cover of anonymity, claimed to have noticed two parked cars on the side of the road on the night and at the location of Elodie's accident. One of them was a station wagon. She stated that two months later, she was chased down by a station wagon and finished on the embankment. She was then threatened with rape and murder by one of the three men in the car. He looked like Willie Bowden. She managed to escape and took refuge at a toll gate where there was CCTV. The men waited for her to come off the toll gate, but got tired and eventually left. She called the police and a composite of the man was made. It resembled Willie Barman. She'd kept quiet until now on the advice of the gendarme. In April of 2014, Willie Barden had been incarcerated for 15 months without even the shadow of a date for his trial. The investigative judge probably hesitated to send the case to the criminal court with so little evidence. Willie Barden was liberated with a GPS bracelet and assigned to house arrest. After two years, these measures were lifted. Three years later, in April of 2017, the judge decided at last to send him to trial and in November of 2019 the proceedings commenced before the criminal court of Amiens, 17 years and 10 months after the murder of Elodie Kulik. Willie Barden appeared as a free man. He wasn't sat in the dock but on the bench with his lawyers. He stayed silent, concentrating on the presiding judge as she read out the charges.
The first day, as is usual in French criminal trials, the court tried to assess the personality of Willy Bardon. His ex-companion of 24 years was the first to take the stand. She told the court about his descent into alcoholism, but stated that he was a good father and was never violent with them. She then admitted, after some prodding, that he had often insulted her when he was drunk, he was demeaning and hurtful, and that he was a manipulator and a liar, and a cheat. Then came the present girlfriend, the one with whom he cheated. Again, with a bit of prodding from the presiding judge, she tells the court about Bardon's sexual appetite and how he always wanted a threesome with his then-companion. More female witnesses describe a man vulgar and obsessed. On the fifth day, the emergency call was played for the court, twice on the loudspeaker system in the courtroom, where the screams of Elodie could be heard over the saturated sound and hissing of the tape. Then headphones were handed out for a more intimate hearing. Four experts were called to the bar, and three testified that the voice recognition from this tape all in all, two seconds of men's voices, had zero root in science and the reliability of any such recognition was next to nothing. On the sixth day, unexploited leads were revoked. The gendarmes were accused of tunnel vision by the defence, only concentrating on Bardon and pushing aside other interesting leads, like Gregory Viat's apprentice at the time, or another of a man drunk who supposedly confessed to the murder in 2003. Despite little direct proof and his denials, Willie Barden was found guilty of the kidnapping and rape of Elodie on December the 6th, 2019. He was acquitted of the murder charge. He was sentenced to 30 years in prison with a non-parole period of 20 years. As the verdict was announced, Barden swallowed something. It was later found to be pesticide. He survived his suicide attempt, though it was touch and go for a few days. He appealed the conviction as soon as he came out of the coma. Willie Barden's lawyers asked for bail while awaiting the appeal process. It was refused twice before he was released in September of 2020. The appeal will take place in Douai from the 14th of June until the July the 2nd, 2021. In 2011, a law was passed in France that obliges the jury in a criminal trial to explain the motivations of a guilty verdict. And to explain the principal elements of this guilty verdict, the jury in Baden's uh, trial um, said one. The jurors recognised Barden's voice on the recording and they had an intimate conviction that the witnesses also recognised his voice. Two, the fact that Barden himself also recognised his own voice when he first heard the tape in custody. Three, intimate conviction that Barden took part in the rape and that he was just more savvy about leaving biological traces than Viard was. Um, that Via and Bardem were so close and always together that the second man could have only been someone close to Via. 
really badens behaviour towards women and especially certain statements in different situations like, quote, I'm going to catch her and rape her, quote, old her, I'm going to rape, kill and burn you, end quote. The defence pointed out that the verdict was contradictory, a rapist but not a murderer. The jury has never explained why they acquitted Barden of murder. A sad story, not yet over, and even if Willie Barden is recondemned, it'll only be half justice, because Gregory Villar, the one we're 100% sure did commit rape and murder, well, he's dead. For Jackie Kulik, Elodie's father, it's a life of endless tragedy. It's difficult to imagine so much loss in one lifetime. His father was killed when he was only 14, Three of his four children are dead, and then his wife passed after nine years in a coma. Jackie Kulik has never stopped fighting for justice, badgering the gendarmes, the investigative judges, even the state's highest officials, for nearly 20 years. He's given hundreds of interviews and is an ongoing presence in the media, a tireless campaigner against the wrong that snatched Ella Diffelman. In March 2021, Willie Barden was condemned by the state to pay €326,000 of compensation to Jackie and Fabian Kulik. The defence team means to appeal this decision at the same time as the criminal appeal. I will do an update as soon as the appeal is finished. Thank you for listening to the episode. If you would like to support the podcast, please subscribe and review. Join me next time on the 15th of May where I'll be telling you about the disappearing men of Mormelon. Photos can be found on the True Crime Fans Facebook page where you can also ask me questions and talk about the cases. I'm your host Deb. Research, writing, translations and editing are done by me. Uh, My many sources can be found in the show notes.